Easter. He is still risen. Isn't that good news, friends? We're going to open our Bibles if you want to join me in following along in the text that I will be teaching and explaining and hopefully exalting over the good news of Psalm 16 found on page 453 in the Black Bibles around you. If you've not come to our church for a little while, this church has existed for about four years, meaning we've had about four Easter services as a church since we first started. And it has been uh, consistent that every Easter, uh, this church and my preaching has not shifted from whatever current sermon series we have been in. And this year is no exception. So if you're expecting, you know, the end of Gospel of Luke or John or something, and the empty tomb and the story of Mary finding Jesus, like, that's, that's currently not what we're studying. We're studying the Psalms, and we're doing a short series in the Psalms, and this will be our sixth and final sermon in this series. And the question throughout this study of the Psalms has been, what, what is a blessed life? And in fact, it will seem at first, the Psalms, Easter Sunday, And I made an announcement a few weeks ago that I'd be preaching from the Psalms on Resurrection Easter Sunday, and I would preach the resurrection of Jesus from the Psalms. And I had one young church uh, participant, a young man, uh, say that he has been looking forward to this sermon for weeks now because he's so excited to see how I'm going to preach the resurrection of Jesus from the Psalms. I don't know if you're as excited as he is. But I'm hoping that some of you will be excited to know that the whole Bible ultimately points us to Jesus. And you're going to see that again today in Psalm 16. And you will not only see the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 16, but you will see, I think, a good summary of everything we've covered over the past six weeks. This will be a good, helpful summary of the series on what is a blessed life. And throughout this series, we've been defining a blessed life as a full, flourishing, happy life. Sometimes that word blessed could be translated, as I've mentioned, celebration or congratulations. This is like a wonderful state of being. Not God blessing you, but rather the state of your existence is just full of richness and fullness of joy. But today's psalm will not only explain what that looks like and summarize many of the things we have seen, but it will also take it one step further at something we've not addressed in this series. How can we have a life that's full of congratulations and celebration and blessing and fullness if it gets cut short? If you don't live to the fullest, you don't live a long, happy, full life, what happens in death? In other words, we need, if we're going to finish this series right, we need to figure out how there can be hope beyond the grave. What happens when death robs somebody of what seemed to be a good, happy, potential life? Last year I read the the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he died in his 30s. And I was thinking, man, what a a brilliant genius of a mind when you read some of his theological works, and what a wonderful family man, and what an amazing pastor he was. And for a guy like me, I'm like, wow, God, why did you have to take him so so short in his life so soon? And especially when you think how he died. 
He died in a concentration camp. And he himself was a German, and it wasn't because he was a Jew. It was because he was trying to end the threats of Germany. He was doing something righteous and good, and oh, it ended up in death. So at the end of his life, do we say, well, that was a wasted life? What happens when death comes sooner than later? A teenager dying in a car accident, or a child dying before it even had a few days to live. What do we say in these moments? In those moments, death does seem to have a sting. And so, turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 16. Let's turn our attention to it and see if you don't see what I'm seeing, that this is an Easter psalm. This is a resurrection psalm. And it gives us the answer to that big threat, death. Starting in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is a blessed life? In this psalm, I see three descriptions of a blessed life. And similar to the sayings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives the Beatitudes, the statements of blessing. I am going to do that for this message. And so, in short, if you're just wanting to kind of follow along in your head or in notes, blessed are those who, one, seek counsel, two, find contentment, and three, live confident. Blessed are those who seek counsel, two, find contentment, and three, live confident. That's the shorter summaries of the outline. I'm going to give you fuller statements as we go through each of them. So first, blessed are those who seek counsel from God's instruction, for they will be like a stream planted by streams of water. Its leaf does not wither. It bears fruit in all seasons of life. As we started this sermon series on the blessed life, we began with Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who is planted by streams of water. He is meditating on the law of the Lord. He is delighting in God's ways and his instructions day and night. 
And in that sermon, I argued that throughout the Psalms, if you read all 150 of them, you will see a repeated theme again and again that a blessed life is one that finds its delight in the ways of God, that God has instructed us how to live in this world, and to find how to live a blessed life, you need to be in motion with God's ways. You need to be on the same wavelength as God. And so that's all through the Psalms. It's in this Psalm, is it not? Blessed are those who seek counsel from God's instruction. Look at verse 2. You'll notice that this life of rejoicing that's described here begins with verse 2 saying, I say to the Lord, you are my master. Adonai is the word there. Sometimes when we see Lord and Lord, it gets confusing. So it's, I say to Yahweh, you are my master, my owner. You are the one who I obey and I submit to. Submitting to his instruction, to his counsel. And in comparison to that, look at verse 4. He does not submit or obey to any other gods. In verse 4, he says, no, anyone who runs after other gods, their sorrows will surely be multiplied. Do you see what's happening in this psalm? There is a way that is right. There is a way that leads to blessing and righteousness. This way is when somebody says, that's my master, and I am going to submit and obey to all of his ways. The other path, the other way, is those who worship any other god, and that leads to more destruction. It leads to sorrows. And so he's like, I I don't even want to touch that. I don't even want to speak it on my lips, the names of these other gods. And so he knows that God's ways are good and that any other way will lead to sorrow. Verse 7, look at the explicit reference to counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. So again, remember, we're reading the psalm, so it's Hebrew parallelism. He's saying the same thing in two different poetic descriptions. So he's saying, I am blessing and just saying, God, you are so good and I want to bless you. And even though That's not going to add anything to God's goodness. It's it's certainly a phrase used throughout the Psalms to describe, I just wish I could give God something back. I want to bless him because he has so richly blessed me with counsel. And God is seen as our instructor, as our trusted counselor. And then finally in verse 11, he makes known the path of life. He reveals it. He he makes it known. He gives you counsel, and it's a path. And he's saying, look, I want to lead you down a path, and it leads to life. That's what God is like. And those who are blessed will find what Jesus calls the narrow path that leads to life, as we will see in a few weeks or so in the Sermon on the Mount. The blessed man, the blessed woman, is those who seek the narrow path. Few will find it. But wide is the road that leads to destruction with multiple sorrows. So I ask you, friend, do you believe that God's ways are best? Or do you think that your ways are better? Do you think you've got it figured out and that God is narrow-minded? And that he needs to have more thoughts and ideas like you do? I think many people struggle with the idea that God's commands or his counsel or his instruction, that they're so burdensome that they rob us of our joy, that God's trying to take and steal and have no fun, that God's the cosmic killjoy. Are you guys having fun down there? Well, stop it. 
That's our views of God, I think, for too many people. How, how different does this psalm describe the blessed life? Oh, fullness of joy. He is not trying to rob you of joy. He is trying to rob you of a path that leads to multiple sorrows. This is the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as we start unpacking it, Lord willing, next week. He wants to show us what truly it looks like to be a human being. He is the greatest human that has ever lived. And he's trying to teach us the manifesto for humanity. Here is how to live, humans. So, number one, blessed are those who seek counsel from God's instructions, for they will be like a stream planted by streams of water, and they will bear fruit no matter what the seasons of life that come. Number two, Blessed are those who find contentment in God's presence, for in His presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Blessed are those who find contentment in God's presence. One of the greatest books that have been written on contentment is by Jeremiah Burroughs. It's an older book. It is cheap or free on Kindle. If you would like to pay 99 cents or maybe even find a free copy online, you could, and start reading it today, and you will be blessed to meditate on the rare jewel of contentment. That's the name of the book, the rare jewel. It doesn't take long to just look around the world and in your life and see that we are starving for contentment. It is a rare jewel. Will you find it? Jeremiah Burroughs in that book says, we are all running around like hungry men and women trying to swallow the air to fill our hungry souls. Could you imagine? Imagine on a windy Chicago day, you opening your mouth and thinking, okay, I'm hungry. Is the problem that there's not enough air and wind coming in your mouth. No, that's not the problem. The problem is not the amount of wind. The problem is that wind does not satisfy the hunger. And so Jeremiah Burroughs says, our problem is not that we don't have enough money, enough material possessions, success or power, friends or popularity, physical beauty, romance, creaturely comforts, and on and on the book goes, meditating on how none of these things bring contentment. They never were meant to satisfy. It's like trying to swallow air. Oh. It's never going to work, friends. You might burp a lot, but you will not be satisfied. It will not satisfy the hunger. They were not meant for that. And this is, in fact, if you remember our sermon series in the last two Sundays, Psalm 34 and Psalm 73 talk about this concept of being in God's presence is the great good that makes everything else in the world just kind of fit in its place, and you can rest with contentment in your soul. In Psalm 34 and Psalm 73, we saw that God is, in fact, near to the brokenhearted. He is not far off. If you're experiencing suffering and pain and trials, we might think, oh, man, God just doesn't love me, and it's so the opposite. When we experience pain and suffering, God is trying to scream at you and say, no, no, it's in these moments in particular that I am close and tender and near. Or as we saw last week, 
in Psalm 73. God does work all things for good and having a relationship with him, oh, it is good to be near the Lord. As for me, it's good to be near the Lord. All the, all the wicked are prospering and they're having all kinds of great success in their jobs and with their money and their bank account and their families, etc. Things just seem to be going well for them, but they're these wicked, awful people. They do it by corruption and stealing and short cutting all kinds of ways. And so he says, look, at the end of the day, you look at the end, to be near God is all that matters. Having a relationship with God brings a whole new perspective. That's what we've covered so far. What is, what is a blessed life? It's to know the presence of God and that be enough. It makes all the difference. Look at the, our psalm. Look at verse 2. I have no good apart from you. In other words, he's saying that every good gift comes from God, from the Father of heavenly lights, as James 1 calls it. I have no good apart from you, God. Look at verse 3. All the saints are my delight. So being with the other fellow believers of God, this is a great delight. Being in God's presence, especially now in New Testament days, is made very, very clear and plain. If you would like to be in God's presence and experience contentment, one way to do that is to be in God's presence with God's people. And that's very clear here. It's not like in odds with one another. In fact, by being around God's people, he's saying, no, this is bringing great delight. And I know, I know for some of you, this is a difficult concept. I, you might say, I, I don't like being with Christians. All the Christians I know are less enjoyable to be around. I enjoy being with non-Christians often a lot more than those Christian people. And so here's two questions for you to think about, if that's you. Question number one, do you really know any Christians? These so-called Christians that you do not enjoy being around, could it be that they are churchgoers, that they're self-professed Christians? They give the name of Jesus, but they do not look like Jesus at all. Because, my friend, I, I promise you, a person that looks and acts like and is being transformed slowly like Jesus, and you can see evidence of that, you will love being around them. It will not be a burden. It will be a delight. They will be servant-hearted. They will have an ear open to your needs and not just talk over you all the time. They will, they will listen and care and give generously. They will serve radically, with full abandon, with all the things of this world, and say, how can I help you and the world around you? Have you met people like that? If you haven't, it's probably because you've not met any Christians, real ones. There's a lot of people that go to church, but they're not Christians. They don't actually follow Jesus. So that might be the first thing to think about, is if you don't like spending time with Christians, and it's not a delight like it seems in this psalmist here, that being in God's presence around God's people it's not a, a true joy. It could just be that those people aren't Christians. A second question for you. If you're a Christian and you're saying, yeah, I love Jesus, but being around other Christians does not bring great joy. I have a lot more fun being around other people who are non-Christians. What does this say about you if you find more joy with being around people who do not share your greatest joy and treasure. Do you see how that doesn't seem to fit? 
If, if Christians, in, in some, in one way to, to, to describe and define what is a Christian, it's somebody who finds God as their supreme joy, as their full treasure forever. And if you don't share that in common with them, how can you say that that's like my closest companion and the very thing that you're defining and identifying your life around, you're at odds with that person? Now, this by no means says that we can't have good friendships with people who don't love and believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean that we should be welcoming and inviting and accepting to anybody who disagrees with us, whether they're Muslim or Hindu or different views of Christianity, etc., or atheists, for example. My question is more if you're saying, I just don't like being around Christians, but I enjoy being around with people who don't love Jesus more than being around people who do love Jesus? That seems off. So those would be two thoughts for you to diagnose if you struggle with this idea of finding great delight in God's presence around God's people. That's verse 3. Look at verses 5 and 6, seeing that there is great contentment in just knowing and having a relationship with God. 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Verse 6, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That word pleasant is actually the same word used in verse 11 that is translated pleasure. So the lines, the boundary lines, and more than likely he's referring to like real estate here. And what I mean by that is that he's talking about God giving him and the Israelite people. So David's a king over Israel and he's saying, wow, God, you have given us a great portion of land. How generous you have been. And it has fallen in pleasant places. We're not being given just the middle of the Sahara Desert, if you want to put it that way. This is not like the wasteland. It's No, it's a land flowing with milk and honey, it's described as. It's a land full of blessing and life in it. So this is what I think he's talking about, is that God is ultimately his portion and his cup, in verse 5, and that God has blessed me with pleasurable places, and so that's why he is in in delight. There's, there's nothing else that he needs. And so in verse 9, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I love the last verse in particular. The word fullness of joy is actually the word satisfied or satiated, meaning completely satisfied or full. So fullness of joy is a, is a good translation. His cup is full. It's, it's overflowing, if you want to say it that way. And so a good question for all of us is, can you improve on verse 11? That last two phrases. Can you think of something better than fullness of joy? If it's full, you can't add anything to it. You know, imagine being like a ridiculous billionaire and somebody saying, hey, I want to give you a dollar. Or, hey, here's a penny. And you're like, cool. That, that does not add to my material wealth very much. Sure, I'll take it, but like I could easily leave it. If you have the beautiful inheritance, the cup, the portion that he's talking about in this psalm, then it's like you being rich with an inheritance. You're a billionaire in the eternal riches standpoint. Your bank account eternally is secure. 
So if somebody comes along and wants to offer you something in the world, you'd be like, okay, I can take it or leave it. It's not a big deal to me. How, 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 do you in, how do you improve upon fullness of joy? If you imagine your cup being completely filled to the tippy top, like, hey, I want to pour some more on there. Well, there's really no room. This is why Christians can live with complete abandon of their lives and say, God, I already got you. My cup is already full. I don't need any of the other things that people want to offer me. How much longer is, could be added to forever? Can you add to forever pleasures? So if you can't add the quantity or amount of joy, it's full, and you can't add to the duration or the length of it because it's forever, can you improve upon verse 11? Like, try me. Challenge me at the door on the way out. Can you think of something that say, all right, I got a deal, Phil. Here's the deal. This deal is better than fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. I'm not going to take the deal. I know because you can't improve. Is there a better description of a blessed life than verse 11, if you want to put it that way? This is my argument, that blessed life is one that is completely content when you know that God is your master, and he is giving you counsel, and that counsel is leading you to his presence, and in his presence there is fullness of joy. Doesn't this sound a lot like the most well-known psalm, by the way? Just a few pages over, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then later on in the psalm it says, My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Does that sound a lot like Psalm 23? I kept reading the psalm this week and saying it sounds a lot like Psalm 23, and then it reminded me of a story of a pastor in England. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's gone and passed away now, but he preached for a long time in England. And there's a story of a woman telling him that he found, she found a, a great way to read the psalms. And she used Psalm 23 as an example and said, that she was told that she should emphasize the personal pronouns. So she would read it, Psalm 23 like this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. You get the idea? She's like, this, this was really insightful for me. She said it was really helpful. Now, Lloyd-Jones was a rather like a blunt pastor, if you want to put it that way. And he's just like, woman, you got it all wrong, you know, essentially. It's like, that's not how you read the Bible. He says, you read it like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. You get his point? Read the Bible God-centeredly. Read Psalm 16 and see if you don't see the same idea. Sure, we could emphasize the personal pronouns of, wow, what a great blessing this is to me. But it's only because first God is the one that is doing this. Preserve me, O oh God. You are my Lord. And he is the one who is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So blessed are all those who find contentment 
in God's presence, for in his presence, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And at this point, I believe these two blessings, point one and point two, blessing from God's counsel and instruction, and blessing from God's presence, even in the midst of all kinds of seasons of sorrow and pain and suffering, have summarized the last five messages. But as I said in our introduction, there's still one looming question, one threat to a blessed life, an untimely death an unsatisfied life that leads to eventual death. And you get to the end of your life and you're full of regrets and you're sad and your sorrows overwhelm you all the way to the point of your last breath. So what, what, what about then? Point three. Blessed are those who live confident in God's protection for death will not rob us of our joy, it will increase our joy. Blessed are those who live confident in God's protection. For death will not rob you of your joy, your blessed status. It will increase it, it will improve it. Now I want to show you that from this psalm, but just in case you don't see it, just know that the, the, the Bible is very clear, especially in the New Testament. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Dying is gain, Philippians 1.21. Dying is gain? Yes, dying is gain. And then he continues on in verse 23. For to depart from this earthly body and die is to be with Jesus in his presence, and that, my friends, is better by far. Better by far to die. Yes, better by far. Or how about Jesus as he's hanging on the cross and he looks to the thief that seems to profess faith in him as Lord, and he says, today, you will be with me in what? Sleep? Just going to be sleeping, unconscious? Today, you'll be with me in hell? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's the word for garden. It reflects back to the Garden of Eden imagery where God's presence and human's presence dwelled as one together. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Do you see what the Bible's telling you? Death does not rob you of joy when Jesus is your Savior. Death increases your joy. It is gain. It is better by far to be in the full presence of Jesus. So look at our psalm, Psalm 16, verse 1. Do you live confident in God's protection over you in life and in death? Verse 1, preserve me, guard me. It's the same word that was given to Adam, by the way, in the garden. Guard over and watch over the garden. It was the one or two tasks he was given to watch and to keep. And that's the word used here. God, I want you to watch and keep and protect, preserve me. Because in you, I take refuge. Which has been a huge theme throughout the Psalms. It was what we saw in Psalm 2 and in Psalm 110, if you remember. Psalm 2 says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in the anointed Son of God, the Messiah. We saw in Psalm 110 that that Messiah would sit at the right hand of the Father. He would destroy all of his enemies. And so therefore, you need to decide, are you his enemy 
Or are you on his army and on his team? And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, there will be no refuge against him. You don't want to be against this son of God, this Messiah, but there will be safety if you are under him or in him. So have you made the Lord your refuge and your shelter? Now, I've lived in different areas. I've lived in areas uh, where there's hurricanes along the East Coast. I remember Hurricane Hugo in North Carolina. That was intense. I was very young, but it was intense. And trees fell down all over the place. It was devastating. I remember being in different hurricanes when I lived in D.C. I remember being in an earthquake in Washington, D.C., not normally known as an earthquake area, and that was a little frightening. And then here, there's not those natural disasters, but I remember living in Kankakee area, south of here, and there was tornado sirens more regularly than there are here in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And so I'm thinking about all those different times, and when big major storms like that come, whether there's the tornado sirens that start blasting, what do you do? What do you do when the news comes and says that there's going to be an awful, terrible hurricane and it's going to flood areas? Well, people get shelter. They find refuge. They go down into their basements or their cellars. They look for covering. Where do you run when storms come in your life? It's easy to run to God and find Him as our refuge on a sunny Easter day and everything's good. I mean, it's cold today, but you know what I mean. On a warm, sunny Sunday, things are well with your family, you're drinking a drink, sipping something back, and it's just, oh, everything's good. That's an easy time. He's talking about preserve me when I'm looking at death in the face. Where do you run then when life gets chaotic? Who do you turn to? And David says, I run to you, God. I take you as my refuge. Look at verse 8 in verse, chapter 16. He says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. And because of that, I shall not be shaken. Do you see the confidence he has? When, when he has God as his refuge and he has him close by always, God is his right hand, which is funny because we'll see in verse 11 that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And there's, I think, this play on words in this psalm about I have the Lord at my right hand, and then the Lord has Jesus at his right hand, and so we're at the Lord's right hand because we're in Jesus, but then we have the Lord at our right hand. And anyway, the point is, is that God is our helper. That's what the idea of the right hand is, somebody who helps and provides strength. And so he says in verse 9, my flesh dwells secure. He rejoices and is glad with his whole being because he has comfort through the storm. He has security. He has safety. He has a refuge. Why is he so secure? Because God is at his right hand. And then look at verse 10. This is where I want us to conclude and finish. And for you to see why this is one of the best Easter psalms my flesh dwells secure in verse 9 because, that word for could be translated because, it's a, explaining why he's so secure and rejoicing with his whole being. Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now I need to do a little teaching here, so I'm asking you all to like, all right, we're going to get taught something, so stay with me here. 
If you miss some of what I'm about to say, I think it will make the crescendoing glorious resurrection point not as good. So don't miss out. What is Sheol? That's the question. And my guess is none of you have this in your English dictionaries, like, well, uh, this isn't helpful, but here's a few clues, okay? First, look at the next line, and remember, because it's parallelism, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, and then he's going to further explain what Sheol is by saying, or let your holy ones see corruption, and some of you might have footnotes that say, well, the Hebrew word here is actually the pit. The word corruption is literally the pit where corruption would happen. And so you could translate it pit or corruption. And I think pit makes good sense for an explanation of what Sheol is. Sheol is a grim, dim, gloomy, and hopeless pit. The Bible pictures Sheol, though, in a number of ways. This is just one of them from Psalm 16. In addition to pit, it is sometimes a place or it is sometimes a condition Say, for example, of being silenced or shamed. Listen to this psalm from Psalm 31, 17. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent in Sheol. So being silenced and put to shame is being paralleled with Sheol. Or listen to this description in Isaiah 14, 11. Of the king of Babylon, Isaiah writes this. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol, where maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. Could that not get much more graphic? What's Sheol? It's a dark, deep pit. It is a place where maggots are your bed, and worms are your covering. Other places in the Old Testament, Sheol is described as an all-encompassing, overwhelming floodwater. 2 Samuel 22. David cries to the Lord and he says, the waves of death are coming over me. The torrents of destruction overwhelm me. The cords of Sheol surround me. Do you see the parallelism? So he's talking about death encompassing, destruction overwhelming, Sheol surrounding me, all saying the same thing. The snares of death are being confronted. I'm being confronted by the snares of death. Think of Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah getting swallowed in the big fish? When he's thrown into that fish, he's crying out and praying in Jonah chapter 2, and he says, I called out to the Lord, and he answered my cry. And from the depth of Sheol, he heard my voice, for God had cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the currents engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. You see the description. He's being surrounded and overwhelmed by great waters and torrents. That's another description of Sheol. You could read Psalm 107, and it will have a variety of images for Sheol. Falling into Sheol, according to Psalm 107, means falling into darkness, being confined, being jailed, like you're trapped down and and shackled, overwhelmed by great waters, swallowed up by the earth is another description of being in Sheol. And literally, there's a story, if you remember, where the earth came and swallowed up the sons of Korah in the book of Numbers. And so at this point, many people, I think, wrongly conclude, and this is a very important point, you're following, right? Sheol must mean hell, but that does not really fit with the way Sheol is used in the Old Testament. For example, when David or Jonah or Jacob 
heroes of the faith, prophets, kings, people that we would say, these, these people are believers. They say they're headed to Sheol. It does not make sense in context to say that they're headed to hell or a place of torment. These people know God. They believe in God. They're trusting in God, and they're praying to God. Why would we say, oh, they're headed to hell? That would be a, I think, misunderstanding or a bad interpretation. So it seems like in some passages, it is a synonym for physical death or going down into the grave, but it is not just a physical death. The Old Testament writers will equate Sheol with the snare of death and that it will also be more than just physical snares of death and biological, physical, my body stops breathing and my heart stops beating. In the biblical perspective, and this is again one of those concepts that I I would imagine many of you in this room, you do not fully grasp in your Bible. And so hopefully this is helpful. In biblical perspective, we, as we are born into this world, we are in a state of death while we live. Death is not just something that happens when your body collapses and dies and you stop biologically breathing and beating. People who are sick, oppressed, afflicted, persecuted, are physically alive, but the Bible often will call these as foretastes of eventual death. This is part of, I think, the reason why Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, but God says, if you eat of the fruit in the garden, you will surely die. And they're like, well, they didn't die. No, they did. They did die. Because you can be alive and you can be dead, at least in a foretaste. I'm headed toward the grave. Foretastes of death. And that's what sickness and oppression and affliction and persecution are. So the biblical writers will use distress and sickness and exile and childlessness and separation from Yahweh, famine, defeats in battle, all as descriptions of foretastes of eventual death. Death is much more broad than what we normally think of it. And all of these are sometimes used with the word Sheol. These living now, but experiencing death as I'm alive. So if you're separated from the presence of God in the temple, if you're alienated from your friends, if you have hostile enemies after you, the biblical writers use the word Sheol. So read Psalm 88 as an example of that, and you will see exactly what I mean. So in short, in sum, Sheol can describe experiences we have in life as we live, like oppression, defeat, illness, isolation, etc. But it can also describe the descent into physical death, down into the grave. But when it does the second thing, when it describes the descent down into death, it is not just everybody's death. So this is a little complex, right? But hopefully you're following. Sheol is multiple different descriptions. And this one is, I think, the most relevant and important to our psalm and the resurrection of Jesus. When the Bible uses Sheol to describe somebody descending down into the physical grave because they've died, it is not universal of everybody who dies just goes down in Sheol. It is seen as a bad place, if you've noticed by the descriptions. The pit, the maggots. It's seen as like an awful death, if you want to use it that way. It's a metaphor to describe a really bad death. So not all deaths in the Old Testament are described as Sheol deaths. When faithful people die, when believers die, oftentimes they're called gathered with their people, with the patriarchs that before them, they're buried down with the other fathers. It doesn't describe them as being buried into Sheol. 
When the righteous die and they're full of many years, they're surrounded by their friends and their families and their troops and they're satisfied, it never ever says those people went to Sheol. Sheol is the description of a violent, premature death. A death where there is no opportunity for the family to carry on the name. Could you imagine? Ancient Near Eastern culture. The patriarch father dies and there's no chance to carry on the name. Think of the book of Ruth. The death in the early verses of Ruth. That's a Sheol kind of death. Sheol is the condition of death when somebody died before they had the chance to fully ripen. Or to use the language of this sermon series. It is before somebody has the chance to live a blessed and full life. So do you see how this question then, being abandoned to Sheol, is like, yeah, that's a big question. That's a threat. That would rob us of a blessed life. That's the actual idea behind it. And hopefully it starts to make sense of how now this applies to Jesus. How then was Jesus delivered from Sheol as it's applied in our earlier scripture reading, Acts chapter 2. Ryan got up here and he said, the reason we're reading this scripture is because the very first sermon given after Jesus rose from the dead quotes at length our Psalm 16 and applies that point about Sheol to Jesus. That he was delivered up from Sheol and he was not abandoned down to Hades, which is the Greek translation of Sheol. Because Jesus did die. And he literally died, right? He went down into the grave. He fully died. But it's a perfect example of a Sheol kind of death. Jesus came. He announced the kingdom of God. He preached. He exercised demons. He had authority over sickness. He was reversing death all through his life. He preached and taught. He raised people from the dead. But then... At the ripe age of 33, he was crucified. His disciples were scattered. His movement was in disarray. His crucifixion seemed to end all hopes that Jesus would be the Messiah, and all of his followers were disillusioned. We thought he was going to be the one, they said. He was cut down in the middle of his life, frustrated by an untimely death, Seemed like that whole announcement of the kingdom just didn't work out. If he was going to be the Messiah and he was going to die, well, a dead Messiah is not a good Messiah. Messiah means king. You want to bow down to your king? Well, he's dead. So much for him being on the throne. Do you see the point? If any death ever was fruitless, shameful, premature, violent, a Sheol kind of death, Well, then it was the death of Jesus. Tragic, pointless, stupid, futile, senseless, meaningless. Good Friday, down into Saturday, that's exactly what Jesus' death appeared. But, like David, God raised and did not abandon Jesus to Sheol. He delivered him from a fruitless and premature death. He brought him back from the grave. His resurrection does not just recover his body biologically. That's true. This church believes and affirms a bodily resurrection, a biological resuscitation of his life. But also notice the bigger point. 
His resurrection is a deliverance from fruitless, pointless, useless deaths, violent deaths, premature deaths. It does not just cancel his death. In fact, it doesn't cancel Jesus' death. He really did die. It didn't wash it out and resuscitate him as if he never died. No, he truly died. What it does is transform his death. It makes his death from meaningless to meaningful, from pointless to poignant. This is what it means for Jesus to be not abandoned to Sheol. The resurrection of Jesus can be seen as a fruitful death that Jesus had. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death can be seen as fruitful. As Zach preached on Good Friday, it's like a seed going into the ground. And when it goes down into the ground, it dies. But because of that, it can bear good fruit, much greater than if it would have never died. So therefore, he was no failed Messiah. This was not a waste. So do you realize what this means for you and for me? I hope so. By the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus delivers all of us who are in Christ and take refuge in him, delivers us from Sheol in every sense of the word that we've talked about. Are you currently in your life right now experiencing the pains and afflictions of death, sickness, Abandonment, violence, affliction, trials, sufferings. He will not abandon you to your present shield. He will not abandon you if you have a descent down into physical, biological death. Whatever you suffer, the resurrection of Jesus delivers in all things we face. The enemies, enslavements, oppression, And so we may be frustrated and think that somebody had their life taken away from them too soon, but because of the resurrection, we know that God will not abandon and he will not leave us. So there's nothing. There's nothing that can rob a Christian from a blessed life in Jesus Christ. We do know Christians who die early, don't we? This text does not promise that Christians won't die early. It's not what it's saying. It's not saying that Christians will not have affliction in this life. Don't basically all of us experience affliction in some time or another. So then did the resurrection fail for us? Does that mean we don't have resurrection power now if we're experiencing Sheol experiences now? No, it contains a promise for us. A promise that because of the resurrection of Jesus... That even if we are cut down before our time, we are like a seed going down into the ground that will bear much fruit. And even if your life feels or seems or even ends fruitless or absurd or frustrated, your dying will be fruitful because of Jesus Christ. No Christian will ever be abandoned to Sheol. They will never suffer death in life without good fruit from that death. No one ever suffers premature death without it being a seed planted and transformed. This is Easter. This is why Psalm 16 is an Easter psalm. It's the good news that Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. And so now the Lord will not abandon his holy ones, any of us, to Sheol. That is the good news that we can go moving forward to know that death will not rob us of a blessed life. It comes in many forms, but all of those forms Jesus has triumphed over, and they will never be pointless, 
senseless, meaningless, because of the resurrection. Let's pray.